Hi, and welcome back to the Magical History Tour Podcast. I'm Hollis, your tour guide, and today we're going to head into the French and Indian War. So let's get started. A few episodes ago, we talked about the French colonies that were being set up in the New World. The British colonies, as we know, were very different from New France. They were typically more diverse. They usually had a governor. They usually had a legislative assembly. Colonists actually had more rights than the Britons in Great Britain did. Their assemblies were elected by popular vote in the lower houses. Now, of course, only adult white males with a certain amount of property could vote. But because property ownership was more widespread in America, more men could vote in the colonies than anywhere else in the world. In fact, the colonial legislatures were growing in power during the 18th century, and most of them not only passed laws and regulations within their colonies, but often controlled the governor through their salary. So you see, in this way, self-government is becoming an important right in British America. So after Cromwell dies in 1658, England will go back to being a monarchy. The new king is King Charles II. That's the son of the first Charles who was executed. He'll get rid of most of the blue laws that Cromwell had enforced, but he did keep some laws that had been enacted while the Commonwealth was in power. And among those are a series of navigation acts that will set down rules governing colonial trade. Now, typically I don't talk about boring rules and laws that much in a podcast, but I do need to mention these because it's going to be trade that defines Britain's colonial policy for the next hundred years. And Charles realized how important that was. At this time, overseas trade is central to a theory that's called mercantilism. Mercantilism is basically the political control of the economy by the state. The powers at this time had the idea that the nation that accumulated the most wealth and economic independence would be the most powerful. And so the key to getting your hands on that coin and becoming you know, the most powerful and having the most wealth is having a favorable balance of trade. So that means that you want to sell more stuff to other countries than you buy from other countries. So your money's coming in and not going out. Now, the merchants of England depended on the crown. The crown would act aggressively on their behalf when it came to foreign trade, when it came to naval protection, when it came to giving them subsidies and things like that. They expected the crown to intervene. The merchants also found that manufacturing was becoming very important. We talk about the beginning a little bit of the Industrial Revolution happening, and that starts in England. At first, it takes a little time, but what they begin to realize is that they could command one price for raw wool, like if they sheared a sheep and sold the wool, they could get a much higher price for cloth that had been spun, woven, and dyed. So when they realized this, the crown began prohibiting the export of raw wool, and they would encourage spinners and weavers in England to compete with other countries by making cloth themselves. And they do this to really promote all sorts of manufacturing. England, as well as all of the major nations of the time period, would have loved to have been self-sufficient. It would have been nice if they didn't have to buy anything from any other country and they could just keep all their money in-house. But that's kind of an impossible dream. They're going to get tea from India. They're going to get silk from Asia and Italy. They're going to get cotton from Egypt. Wine will be imported from France, among other places. And they also needed vast amounts of timber to 
to build ships. England didn't have a whole lot of trees left, basically, that were able to use to build ships. So that is going to be where the colonies begin to help out. They reduced England's dependence on foreign imports because they were part of England. So any money that you made from the colonies was in-house. Any money that you put out to the colonies was in-house because they're part of Great Britain. Taking several Caribbean islands like Barbados will give England access to sugar. The colonies will have tons of trees available in the eastern woodlands to fell for timber. Now, England paid for these things, but a lot of times they didn't pay in form of coin. Instead, they traded. They got a lot of manufactured goods from England sent to the colonies and all these other things that England makes and produces they sent to the colonies. So this gives England a win-win situation. She gets the colonies raw materials and then she had a market for her own manufactured goods. The Navigation Acts that were passed between 1660 and 1663 were passed in order to help England's trade with the colonies. Now, they do consider the welfare of the colonies, of course, but if you have to choose between the economic interests of the colonies and the economic interests of the mother country, guess who wins out? It's not going to be the colonies. So the colonies are there to help the British Empire make money. So the Navigation Acts there were several of them, said things like all colonial trade had to be carried out in ships built by English or colonial merchants. So you couldn't have an Italian ship take your stuff somewhere. They also required that European goods that were intended to be sold in the colonies had to go through certain English ports where they could be monitored and taxed before going on to America. That means they're going to tax what they're sending over. It'll be more expensive. The acts also designated certain colonial exports that were really valuable, like tobacco, as enumerated articles. That means that they could be shipped only to English ports so they could be taxed before they went anywhere else. So the colonies could sell tobacco to France, but they had to send it to England, have it taxed, and then it could go to France. So tobacco, sugar, molasses, rice, cotton, things like that were considered enumerated articles. There were other things that were like cheaper and not as, not as necessary that were overlooked, but people didn't like the fact that they had to get their product taxed before it could go to another country. And mercantilism is going to affect the different colonies in different ways because most of them have varying economies. In the South, that's Maryland and Virginia, North and South Carolina and Georgia, English merchants are really partial to the Southern colonies because they're very profitable because of tobacco and rice. They had a large labor force of slaves that had to be clothed with English manufacturers and they used a lot of tools that were made there as well. The planter elite in the South grew incredibly wealthy. They bought a lot of luxury items from English merchants. So the South makes them a lot of money. Unfortunately, though, by the 1660s, tobacco is not making quite as much money because so many other areas in the world have started selling it. Other countries are competing because they're making tobacco also. Tobacco planners blame the Navigation Acts for their shrinking profits because their tobacco had to be taxed before it could go anywhere else. And so it's going to be a higher price and it's not as competitive in the world market. Market. Smuggling becomes really common in the South, and evading that law was fairly easy because the South has a lot of inlets and bays, and you could just sneak in and take stuff out, and nobody would know. This allows the planters to sell their tobacco to the Dutch and other countries without having to go through England. And like I said, because of the landscape of the Chesapeake, ships had easy, often direct 
access to plantations. You could just pull up to a plantation on a ship and load it up and go. So because of that, you're not going to see a lot of major urban ports developing in Virginia and Maryland. Now in New England, where 90% of American exports were shipped from, they were hard hit by some of these navigation acts. In 1678, the Massachusetts legislature actually comes out and will defiantly declare that the Navigation Acts had no legal standing in the colony. Six years after that, King Charles II will try to teach them a lesson. He revoked their charter. So Massachusetts, as we see, the Puritans don't like to be told what to do. (laughs) King Charles II died, and he was succeeded a year later by his brother, James II. And he's the one who we talked about in an earlier episode where he... He took all the New England colonies and put them into one big dominion of New England. And they didn't like that at all. And people didn't like him in England as well. So we had the Glorious Revolution, which I talked about a few episodes ago. And the new king and queen, William and Mary, will come to power. And they give their colonies the charters back. Uh, Except for Plymouth, they'll put that in with the Massachusetts Bay Colony. But they give them the charters back. But they do crack down on smuggling and rebelliousness. They actually put a royal governor with veto power over the assembly in Massachusetts, and they removed the Puritans' religious qualifications for voting. So you didn't have to be a member of the Puritan church to vote. And we talked about how that caused a lot of problems and, you know, dissent in the Puritan community and could have helped lead to the witch trials. Now, the Glorious Revolution, though, is really important for a couple of reasons. It's known, of course, for its bloodlessness. Nobody gets killed. They just banish James elsewhere and bring in his daughter and her husband. But the Glorious Revolution also showed the people that if a monarch was hated enough by the people, they could depose him. And it's around this time where you have the Enlightenment period that the English philosopher John Locke will publish his two treatises on government. And those treatises have a really great impact on the colony's political thought. It's where they get the idea of rejecting the divine right of monarchs. Uh, They get the idea that people have natural rights. And they also get the idea that when a ruler fails to protect his subjects, the people had the right to overthrow him or her and change the government. That came out in 1690. The Glorious Revolution started in December of 1688. And so these ideas are all swirling around during this time period and all of them will help lead the colonists into eventual revolution. Now, another thing we'll talk about that leads the colonies into eventual revolution is how Britain treated them. From 1713 to 1739, the French and the British are at peace. The colonies did very well during this time, and a lot of that is due to the policies of the British Prime Minister at the time, Robert Walpole. Walpole felt that the best way to govern was as little as possible. Things seem to be working well in the colonies, so why change things? That is a policy that's going to be known as salutary neglect. And basically, it is Britain ignoring the colonies and not emphasizing the laws. They go so far as to overlook major breaches to the Navigation Acts that were continually going on, smuggling and stuff like that. Now, he couldn't totally ignore it when other people get upset with something. But generally speaking, they just didn't police the colonies that much. Now, one good example of this is the Molasses Act of 1733. The Molasses Act of 1733 was Walpole's response when the British West Indian sugar planters begin to complain that the colonists were buying cheaper molasses from the French. Because of mercantilism, they felt that the crown should fix that 
and that they should be entitled to a monopoly of the molasses market in New England. Parliament will pass the Molasses Act of 1733, and in that act, Walpole will levy a sixpence per gallon tax on French molasses. So he doesn't say you have to buy British West Indian molasses. He says, you can buy what you want, but we're going to tax the French molasses, so it's going to cost more. So it'll encourage them to purchase the British molasses. So that makes the English sugar planters feel better, makes them a little happier. But he never actually did much about collecting the tax. He put it into law and then didn't put it into practice. So colonials really didn't have a problem with the act. They didn't throw a big fit about that because it's not an act that's actually enforced. No one ever really collected the tax. So salutary neglect was working really well for everyone for a while. But one problem with that neglect is that they don't realize it, but the mother country was losing political control over the colonies. And we'll see how that ends up. Now, with regard to Europe during this time, you have a whole lot of wars happening. There were four worldwide wars between 1689 and 1763. We don't really talk about them because the colonies don't get too involved in those wars unless they themselves had an issue with something. One good example, they had something called the War of the League of Augsburg. The colonists didn't take part in it, really, and they called it King William's War. It was to show that they just weren't really interested. It was there. It was King William's thing. They weren't having anything to do with it. But they did get involved with fighting warring countries whenever something was directly affecting them. And one thing that begins to directly affect them is France, the French colonies. In New England, the French and the Native Americans band together and began raiding colonial towns of the British. One example in particular was in Deerfield, Massachusetts. The English assumed that since it was winter, nobody would be attacking because generally speaking, it didn't happen. You didn't have attacks in the winter. It was too cold. People couldn't get through the snow, all kinds of things like that. So it was not really a good idea to attack during the winter. So they're not ready and they were wrong. The French and the Indians will begin attacking Deerfield, Massachusetts. In a town of about 270 people, 44 were killed, including 9 women and 25 children. They also took 109 captives, and only 59 of those captives were ever returned. There's a really interesting book. It's called The Unredeemed Captive by John Demos, and it's a really great look at captives in America during this colonial time, people who were taken to live with the Native American population. There's all kinds of captivity stories in history, and some of them are really interesting. And this is one that was made into a book, and it's about Deerfield, Massachusetts, and the minister there, Reverend Williams, his daughter was taken, his wife was killed, and his youngest daughter, who was only about three, her name was Eunice, and she was taken. The story is about her captivity and then also his unrelenting fervor in trying to get her back, trying to find out where she went, where she was taken, what tribe she was with. It's a really great book. It's nonfiction, but it's not a bad read. If you like things like early American history and you want to hear about the unredeemed captive, then you should take a look at it. But Deerfield, Massachusetts had this, this is one good example of a tax of the French and the Native American tribes that have allied with them against the English. 
These problems between the British and the French stem partially from land hunger. Of course, after the Glorious Revolution, you know, William and Mary are both Protestant. They don't like the Catholic French leaders. That's an issue. But additionally, both countries believe that the country that held control of the Ohio country area in the New World would eventually rule the whole continent. So those problems are going to lead us into the French and Indian War. There are three big wars that come before the French and Indian War. We don't really talk about those, the War of the League of Augsburg and things like that. But the French and Indian War is going to be different from those wars because of a lot of things. Number one, it's a worldwide war. The British and the French are going to face off on the high seas, the West Indies, and in the colonies, as well as Europe itself. It's not a world war. We define a world war as one where a lot of countries are involved, but a worldwide war means that it is fought in many locations around the globe. So the French and Indian War, or it's going to be called the Seven Years War in Europe, that is going to be considered a worldwide war. Second, it is different because it actually began in North America. The other three wars were European wars and didn't really concern the colonies that much. Finally, it's going to be a decisive war. A lot of wars during this time end up stopping, but they're inconclusive. They don't really have a definite winner or a definite loser. And this one, you'd get that. You, it's, you know, that's your, that's unheard of in European wars at the time to get a definitive winner. <laughs> and, and so this is going to be one where they do. They get a definitive winner and a definitive loser. Looking at the Seven Years War, or the French and Indian War as we call it. So you have a bunch of colonies, but at this point they're all separate. This war is going to look at how they begin to cooperate and work together and become more cohesive. The first unsuccessful attempt occurs in 1754. Representatives from New England, New York, Pennsylvania, and Maryland will meet to consider a joint approach to the problems that they're all having with the French and Native Americans who are attacking them. Fighting had actually begun already on the Ohio River between French Canadians and Virginians. That's the first fighting in what was going to be called the French and Indian War. Now, in this war, Britain and Prussia are going to fight France, Spain, and Austria. So the meeting took place in Albany, New York, and it was convened by the British Board of Trade. The British Board of Trade was hoping the colonists would consider a collective response to the continuing conflict with New France and the Native Americans of the interior. Now, they were also hoping to negotiate a settlement with leaders of the Iroquois Confederacy, who were also in attendance at the meeting. They wanted to keep the Iroquois happy because they occupied a very strategic location between New France and the British colonies, and they had a what they called a covenant chain of alliances with other native tribes. So the Confederation was very powerful. However, the Iroquois, who were really tired of colonials taking their land, ended up getting angry and walking out of the meeting and refusing to join a British alliance. Benjamin Franklin, who attended the meeting, saw a great need for cooperation among the colonies, and he proposed something called a plan of union. That's where Native American affairs, Western settlement, and other items of mutual interest would be placed under the authority of one general government for the colonies. So it wouldn't be the assemblies of each colony. They would form a new government that's kind of a general government that just dealt with certain things that they all had problems with. Britain was not too sure about creating a powerful entity that they might not be able to control. But fortunately for them, all of the colonial assemblies reject the plan because they feared a loss of authority on their part. So the first attempt at colonies working together didn't 
didn't really work so well. And this lack of cooperation among the colonies is going to become one of the greatest weaknesses for Britain in the war, because the war is going to be fought in a lot of locations, and it would require a lot of coordination of command, and it wasn't going to happen at first. Now, the three main points of conflict in North America were, at the very top end, the French port of Louisbourg. Louisbourg was taken over briefly by the British, but was now back under French control. But it goes back and forth. It's a really important port. The border region between New York and New France, because of the competition there for trade with the natives, and also the Ohio country, which becomes the primary focus for both of those countries. The British backcountry colonists were eyeing the land. They wanted to expand outward. And the French were afraid of losing their control of the Ohio River. That could affect their Mississippi trade empire. So they all are interested in the Ohio country land. It's also really good land. A lot of native tribes already lived in the Ohio Valley, and others had begun to take refuge there as their homelands had been taken up by settlers. Most of those tribes opposed the British, and they wanted the Appalachian Mountains as a barrier to westward expansion. They wanted the British government to say, okay, we won't go past the Appalachians, you know. They were also concerned with French movement into the area, but not as much because French outposts didn't tend to become centers of expanding agricultural settlements. Most of the native tribes attempted to keep the colonial powers at a stalemate by playing them off of each other. Full-scale warfare between France and Britain began in 1756, and 56 and 57 were really bad years for the British. The native tribes attacked the backcountry settlements, they killed thousands of people, as well as raided deep into coastal colonies, and because the colonies didn't cooperate with each other and work together, it was really hard to mount a counterattack. When the British commanders tried to lead the colonial troops and coordinate things, local authorities would just get mad, and they wouldn't do what the British leaders said said because they were used to having local militia run by people that they knew from their town. And then some guy comes in from Britain and says, you have to do what we say. And they don't like that. Since we're just surveying American history, we're not really getting too deep into battles and things at the French and Indian War. But William Pitt is the new prime minister of England, and he's determined to win the war. He'll subsidize Prussia. He pays Prussia to fight in Europe to save British troops for the fight in North America. He committed them to the conquest of Canada and the elimination of all French competition in North America. Now that's going to require a lot of men and a lot of money. He'll get the cooperation of the colonists by promising that the king would pay for the expense. He said, you're not going to have to pay for this war. We'll pay for it. We're not going to tax you for it. So they liked that. He will send British currency to the colonies to stimulate the economy in North America. And he'll send over 20,000 troops to North America across the Atlantic to combine with the colonial forces, which will give them over 50,000 armed men against the French. He will also get help from the native tribes gradually by promising to agree to make a clear boundary that would be respected between Native American and colonial land. These things will begin to turn the tide. The British begin to win. They captured Louisbourg in July of 1758. They got a strategic French fort a month later that will prevent the French from resupplying their western posts. Because of the British promises, the Native Americans will begin to abandon their French alliances, and the last of the French forts on the New York frontier will fall in 1759. At that point, Britain will turn her attention to Quebec, and they fight an 
epic battle where over 2,000 people died, but Britain won and Quebec fell. The conquest of Montreal the next year will seal the destruction of the French Empire in America. In the last two years of the war, the British will sweep French ships from the seas, they conquer Cuba and several other important Spanish and French colonies in the Caribbean, and they'll achieve dominance in India. They also capture the Spanish Philippines. The Treaty of Paris in 1763 will end the war, and in that treaty, France loses all of its possessions on the North American mainland. They ceded all claims to Britain, except for New Orleans, which goes to Spain. Spain will receive its Caribbean and Pacific colonies back in return for giving Florida to Britain. So it is a complete victory for the British Empire. And if you ever look at a map before the French and Indian War, where it lists the Spanish, French, and English lands, and then you look at one directly after the French and Indian War, you'll see that there's no more France and a lot less Spain. So it's a complete victory for the British Empire. The British will allow Canada to keep Catholicism as a national religion. Additionally, New France had previously been governed by the military, as I mentioned in one of the earlier podcasts. So when Britain withheld a traditional form of representative government from the Canadians, they didn't really see much of a difference. They had no assemblies or anything like that, and they were fairly easy to run with the British military. So the really big difference is the military that was running them had a color uniform. The Native Americans in the area, on the other hand, were a lot more difficult. The Native Americans in Ohio were upset when they found out that France had ceded the western country to Britain because they felt that it was their country, not France's. You know, you can't cede someone else's country to another country. Also, the British general assigned to that territory was a man named Amherst. And he was just horrible. He was put in charge of the area, but he didn't get the culture. He didn't understand what they were doing there. He did things like ban the giving of gifts to native chiefs and tribes. That was a custom that had been long used in France to gain favors with the tribes. The Native Americans were angry. They were frustrated by British refusal to supply them with ammunition needed for hunting. A lot of the gifts that had been given to the tribes to keep peace were gifts of ammunition and things of that nature. And so when they stopped doing that, that was something that the native tribes had relied on and it becomes a problem. So during this time, hundreds of natives become followers of a Native American named Neolin. They called him, it meant the enlightened one. The British called him the Delaware prophet. And he taught that the natives had been corrupted by European ways and that they should purify themselves by returning to tradition and preparing for a holy war. Several tribes will organize and coordinate an attack on the British front frontier posts in the spring of 1763. Their intention was to drive out the settlers. Their leader was an Ottawa chief named Chief Pontiac, and he declared to the British, he said, the French never conquered us, neither did they purchase a foot of our country, nor have they a right to give it to you. So in May of 1763, the Indian Confederacy will simultaneously attack all British forts in the West, and they raided settlements throughout the backcountry. It was a very concerted attack. General Amherst, unfortunately, will order that blankets infected with smallpox be distributed from Fort Pitt's hospital to those native tribe members who typically still came in to get aid. And that germ warfare, some of the first germ warfare in history, will kill hundreds of Native Americans. Though they sacked and burned eight British posts, they did fail to take key forts. So Pontiac's rebellion is going to end up being a stalemate. Pontiac and his followers continued to fight for about a year, but 
but eventually most tribes will begin to sue for peace, fearing the destruction of their villages. The British knew that they actually could not overwhelm the tribes if they really got together and fought them, so they agreed to settle on terms, and Pontiac's Rebellion, as I said, is a stalemate. Now, after Pontiac's Rebellion, the Royal Proclamation of 1763 is passed, and that will set aside the region west of the Appalachian Mountains as what they called Indian Country. That meant that you would have to get specific authorization from the Crown to settle there. Now, this really upsets the colonists because, number one, they felt they should just be able to move west whenever they felt like it, uh, now that the French are not a threat. Also, they didn't really understand the fact that the British were awarding territory to their enemies who had killed, you know, hundreds of settlers in the war that had just ended, and the British had actually won the war. So they were like, why are you doing that? They don't get it. So to show how the backcountry settlers felt about all this, and because they felt the British had not adequately protected them during Pontiac's Rebellion, a mob of Pennsylvanians known as the Paxton Boys will go out and they butchered 20 Native American men, women, and children in the village of Conestoga in December of 1763. When colonial authorities tried to arrest them, 600 frontiersmen will march on Philadelphia in protest, and Benjamin Franklin had to lead quick negotiations to prevent a bloody confrontation. In the end, the British could not and really would not prevent westward expansion. Within a few years, thousands of settlers will push closer to Iroquois homelands. Farmers and stock herders will begin planting communities in West Virginia and Tennessee. Investors and speculators are beginning to eye land west of the Appalachian Mountains. So the British will begin pressing the Iroquois and Cherokee Indians for sessions of land in Indian country. Now that there's only one power, the native tribes couldn't manipulate them, and they had to comply or resist. Most of them were weakened by the recent war, and they chose to sign away their land because they didn't have any other choice. Individual colonies will be even more aggressive in getting land, often disregarding the settlements that had been agreed upon by the British government and the native tribes. This continued struggle for the West is going to become a big issue in the coming American Revolution, and the Proclamation of 1763 is going to be remembered by the colonists as an early example of the king's campaign to take away their liberties. I hope you enjoyed your tour of the French and Indian War. Tune in next week when our tour will set out on the road to revolution. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and recommend the Magical History Tour podcast to a friend.